Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but, but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Those are the first four verses and the last six verses of Psalm 90, which along with Psalm 87 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, November the 13th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, we have, we're still in the book of First uh, Maccabees, the second chapter, the first 28 verses, in the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. So in those days, Mattathias, so we've gone from the broader history of the oppression of the Jewish people in the land by Arist- Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the uh, king at that time, and now we're, we're bringing it down to a personal level. So we have the broad overview the first couple of days, and today we're going to bring it down to the personal level, and we're going to get introduced to the Maccabees. In those days, Mattathias, son of John, son of Simeon, a priest of the family of Joreb, departed from Jerusalem and settled in Modin. He had five sons, John, who was called Gaddi, Simon, who was called Thasi, Judas, who was called Maccabeus, Eliezer, who was called Avaron, and Jonathan, who was called Aphus. So those would have been their uh, Roman names, essentially, those second ones would have been. When he delivered, when he observed the sacrilegious acts that were being committed in Judah and Jerusalem, he, Mattathias, the father of these men, said, Alas, why was I born to witness the ruin of my people and the ruin of the holy city, and to sit by idly while she has been delivered over to her enemies and the sanctuary given to the hands of foreigners? Her temple has become like a prison without honor. This is poetry here. Uh, her glorious vessels have been carried off as booty. Her infants have been slaughtered in the streets. Her young men slain by the sword of the enemy. What nation has not usurped a share of her sovereignty and carried off her possessions as plunder? All her adornment has been stripped from her. She who has enjoyed freedom has now become a slave. We see our sanctuary and our beauty and our glory now laid waste. The Gentiles have defiled them. What now do we have to live for? So, it is a man who, who loved the Lord and loved the things of the Lord. And he sees the the glory of Zion, the glory of the beauty of Jerusalem, particularly the beauty of the temple, as being having been ultimately defiled and brought to nothing at all. And so what do we have to live for? That is a beginning place. What do we have to live for is a place where we can always begin. Whenever we get to the place where we don't think we have anything left to live for, there is something. There is absolutely something. And so Mattathias and his sons tore their garments, put on sackcloth, and engaged in great mourning. So they are expressing their their mourning before the Lord for what's happened here. The officers of the king, who had been commissioned to enforce the apostasy, came to the town of Modin to ensure that the sacrifices were being offered. And many Israelites assembled around them, but Mattathias and his sons stood apart. Uh, 
Then the officers of the king addressed Mattathias in these words, You're a leader in this town, respected and influential, and you have the support of your sons and brothers. Now be the first to come forward and obey the decree of the king, as all the Gentiles have done, as well as the citizens of Judah and the people who remain in Jerusalem. Then you and your sons will be counted among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honored with gold and silver and many other gifts. So in other words, you're leaders here, and we need you to lead. And the way we need you to lead is to follow the king's edict, to recognize his authority over you, and and then you can be friends of the king, which is a good thing to be, right? Friends of the king can't get any better than that, except for I already have a king. And so I'm not going to bow the knee to this king who is asking me to do so by turning away from my king. And it's the same thing that, that Satan offers to Jesus, right? If you'll just bow down and worship me, then you can have all these kingdoms. And that's exactly what this king and his representatives are offering to uh, Mattathias and his sons. Come on, step up and lead. Lead them, lead them into apostasy is essentially what's be, being offered. Well, look, other people have done it. Other Gentiles have done it. Other people like y'all have done that in Judah and Jerusalem, in fact. However, Mattathias responded in a loud voice. Even if every nation in the king's dominions obeys him, each one forsaking the religion of his fathers and agreeing to submit to the king's commands, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to observe the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should ever forsake the law and its statutes. We will not obey the king's commands or deviate from our religion to the right hand or to the left. It's the, the choice that's been put to God's people from, from the time of Moses to the time of Joshua to every good priest and king who ever served as leaders over God's people. Choose life. As for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord. And that's exactly the leadership that God's people are intended to take in, in all times and in all places. There, there will come a day when you're offered the opportunity to compromise, an opportunity to do the wrong thing. I went to work for a guy that I knew was the wrong person, and I knew he was not a trustworthy person. And then how upset was I, though, when he betrayed that trust and he committed fraud? Um, I already knew this about the guy, but he offered me more money than other people did, so I took the job. Um, we, we can compromise, and we can compromise ourselves right into misery, or we can stand with the Lord. And, and what he's saying is, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And as he finished speaking, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modin, in accordance with the royal decree. When Mattathias observed this, he became inflamed with zeal. His righteous anger aroused, he sprang forward and slaughtered him on the altar. At the same time, he also killed the officer of the king who was present to enforce the sacrifice, and he destroyed the altar. In this way, he demonstrated his zeal for the law, just as Phineas had done with Zimri, the son of Salu. So in the time of Phineas, who was a grandson of Aaron, there was a problem with intermarriage after Balaam gave um, the Moabites the, the uh, tactic, which was to go in and just intermarry with them, and then they'll start following after your gods. It'll be that simple. Go ahead and do that. And so they're trying to clean that up, and this Zimri goes into a woman who is not an Israelite, and he has sex with her right there in front of all the people. He goes into the tent to have sex with this woman, and Phineas goes in and puts a spear through both of them in the act. And that was acceptable because it would happen in front of other people. It was the one place where, where you, an individual could execute that kind of judgment without bringing somebody to trial because the evidence was there, but you had to catch them in the act 
to do it. And so Phineas, when he does that, he's acting in accordance with the law. And then after that, God declares that the priesthood will come through the line of Phineas. So it's a, it's a powerful statement. And then so when here, Mattathias does the same basic thing. He kills an Israelite in the midst of an apostasy and a sin who's sacrificing against or to a foreign god who is no god at all, as we know. And so that the issue there there is is that he they're they're justifying what he did by saying it's exactly like Phineas did, and look at the commendation Phineas got from God. So then Mattathias advanced through the town, shouting, "Let everyone who is zealous for the law and who stands by the covenant come with me." Then he and his sons fled to the hills, leaving behind in town everything that they had possessed. Sounds like the call of the disciples, right, who were sitting at their nets, and then suddenly when Jesus calls them, they, they leave everything and come follow him. Same with Matthew, whose call calls him from his seat of custom to do the same thing. And so this is what you're seeing is they left everything behind. The only thing they had left was God. So whenever there's nothing left to live for, there is. There's him. There's his kingdom. And then the gospel, Jesus began after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Notice he didn't mention the Romans. And be killed, and on the third day be raised. It's not pagans who put Jesus to death. It was religious people. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan the one he had just said, <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and, and you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now he turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And, and as I've mentioned before, this is the same temptation that was offered to Jesus, a kingdom without a cross, it was, if you'll bow down and worship me, then you can have all this without any suffering at all. And so that's what Peter's saying is, is he's, he wants him to, to assume that throne without the suffering of the cross. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, like I said before, that, that's, that's a, you know, a, a, an easy thing for us to understand, but, but that's because we live on, on the other side of Easter, we know that the cross led to the resurrection, led to the glorification and the ascension and the singing at the right hand of God the Father. They didn't know that. This is a very weird thing for Jesus to say at this point in time. What do you mean, take up your cross and follow me? I mean, they knew that that would be the, the instrument of execution, that that's the way, if, if, if it went the way Jesus said, it, it might go exactly that way. But Nobody thought that was going to happen, and he certainly wouldn't have expected them to take up their cross and follow him, because that is the rejection by God. It's an abomination to have been uh, crucified that way, and so to take up your cross and follow him is just a metaphor that doesn't make any sense in, in in the time that he said it. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, if you, if you want to have eternal life, this is the only path. This is the way to do it. You've got to lay down your life. Um, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. 
Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And sure, they did. They did see him come in his kingdom. They saw him in his glory. And it it's a powerful thing for us to, to recognize. What he's calling us to do is to renounce everything. He's calling for an utter renunciation of our own claim to our lives in order to come into his kingdom. And it's the same thing that he asked of the rich young ruler who came and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he said, this is a real simple question. You've got to get rid of your earthly inheritance in order to do that. It's not enough that you've done the commandments to uh, vis-a-vis your neighbors. Um, there's one more thing you have to do, and the way that you're going to show God that you love him is to give up everything that you have on this earth. And, and Jesus does call us to that kind of renunciation, but we're, we're announcing one something for a greater something, right? I mean, so we're, we're renouncing this life for that life. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to live this life and enjoy this life, um, but what it does mean is that we're not living primarily for this life. It's not the most important thing, and if we're not pursuing the kingdom of God here on earth, then we'll not see it in heaven either. We can't be devoting 100% of our time to seeking after um, things of this earth without giving a thought for him and setting those things above his kingdom, no matter how we might baptize our desires and say these things are more important because they're for the kingdom. Um, that's Jesus' response to the Pharisees who say that, yeah, you say everything that, that your father might have had is now korban. Uh, it, it's set aside for the Lord. It sounds holy. But it's not. And, and so we can make our desires a holy thing uh, without those things actually being holy. And we've got to be careful about that. It's where, where's your treasure? That's the ultimately that's all that matters. Are you willing to walk away from all those other things in order to receive the kingdom? And, and it doesn't mean you, you can sort of not possess them in your heart. Uh, it means, no, you, you literally got to be able to, to walk away in the Revelation passage, he sees an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan had bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Well, no, we don't have any earthly idea why he has to be released for a little while. And I, I wish that that weren't there. I wish that he didn't get released for a little while. It'd be nice if, if, they, if he remained bound, but, but that time has not yet come. The time for that will be when he comes back and sets the church free, sets his people free, and, and begins the everlasting and eternal kingdom. It says, Then I saw thrones and occupied or seated on them with those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So these are the ones who stood during the time of the tribulation and said no. Even to death, some for some, but for others, those who just refused to bow the knee. And it's the same choice that Daniel and his companions were faced with when they were taken into Babylon. Remember, the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into um, the, the fiery furnace was because they refused to bow down and worship the image that had been set up and, and to worship the king. And, and it was the same problem 
that the Jews had in the book of Esther when they refused the king's edict to worship him as well. And so we're, we're always called in our own age to renew that covenant, to stand up and say, who's going to stand with me? We've got to do it in our own times always. It's got, the covenant has to be renewed in every single generation. And that's the problem in some ways is that, that we fail to see that. We, we assume that because we, you know, kind of do the formal things the right way, then the covenant has been renewed because we've worshipped and we've brought our kids in in baptism. But what have you baptized them into? Have they been baptized into Christ? Have they been baptized into the truth? Or have they been baptized into the spirit of the age that's now been baptized somehow or another and called Christian? So it's, it's always been the question, right, because we can always baptize culture. And we have baptized culture over and over and over again. And, and so it's constantly an issue for the church, I think, to be able to separate itself from culture and say, what is okay in culture that we can then begin to emulate? And what's not okay in culture that we should not emulate? Does the Scripture say something against that? And so I think we've taken a false leadership model into the church over the last whatever period of time, and that false leadership mo- model uh, separates the leader from the people. And God said he would set shepherds over his people. And so it's important that we maintain scriptural integrity whenever we think about those issues, that we, we can't allow best practices in the world to override God's word. We can't allow the spirit of the age to override God's word when he's spoken clearly about things. We can't then reject that clarity and still remain in covenant with him. He said that that those souls came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And I don't know when that thousand-year reign is. I don't know if we're in it. I don't know if it's already happened. I I have no earthly idea. I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to that. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, the eternal death, has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So it's important for us to continue to be faithful and to be like the Maccabees were, to stand against the spirit of the age and the temptation to worship an idol or idols and to refuse to allow idols to be set up in our own lives. And we need to be easily convicted of that sin of idolatry. We need to be open to correction, to being able to see, yep, I think that's an idol in your life. I don't think that it's really um, benign. I think that what, you're, what you've got there is something that, that really needs to be excised, and you need to re-examine that. It's, it's always important that we be able to be corrected. It's always important that that correction bring us back to uh, wholeness in Christ, because that correction is not condemnation, it's conviction. Unless we refuse to be convicted, then it becomes our condemnation.